our loving Lord Jesus, our Savior, the one who's changed everything for us and for the whole world. We run into your arms right now and ask that you would share with us and be with us and teach us today what you want us to know. That you'd lift us up in some of the challenges of our life and some of the challenges of simply following you. But you'd show us the goodness in that. Because the wondrous thing about the riches of your love is that one of those riches is your presence around us, in us, to each other. As we open your word, your presence in your word. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that today. We ask you to be here today in that powerful way and launch us into understanding what it really is you want to do in our time, in this day, in this moment of our life together, in us. We love you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for being here. We know that you are. We can sense it, and thank you for letting us sense it. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I need to... Uh, start off with a story about sports. So I know so not everybody here is into sports. I understand that. I get that. But you're into a good story. And uh, I, besides that, I have to do a mea culpa here. Uh, two weeks ago when we were talking about the crucifixion uh, and we were getting ready to talk about the resurrection, I said uh, something like this. I said, we shouldn't even be here if it weren't for the resurrection and the crucifixion. There wouldn't be a Christianity. We would all be home, you know, just hoping, hoping, hoping that the Blazers don't get throttled by Oklahoma City. Well, I have a story to tell. They did not get throttled. They moved to the second round. Now, okay, to justify myself a little bit, they've lost 10 playoff games in a row up to this point, up to this season. And they have not been in the second round of the playoffs for years. But they were as of Tuesday night. And the cool thing was, this is just a great story. You've got you to feel this now. They, it was impossible for them to win. About five minutes to go, they were 15 points down. And this is in Portland. And, and they, they um, uh, you know, Joseph Nurkic, the, um, the center that's got his leg busted, he, he leaves home, he comes in the arena about three minutes to go, and the, the crowd goes nuts. And then they're eight, eight points down. And then they catch up with C.J. McCollum shooting points, and, and, and Damian Lillard got up to 47 points, and then he's got the ball, Damian Lillard, with six seconds to go, and he's back three. If, if you've never played basketball, you would have no idea how hard this is. 38 feet back, way behind, about 10 feet behind the three-point line, he launches it, swishes, nothing but net. Bam, they go into the second round. It was... I. I, I asked Sharon the next morning, did I wake you up? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. Because I was going crazy. I almost texted Tony Westover, but I was afraid he hadn't watched the game yet. Because last time I texted him, he hadn't watched the game yet, and that, that, was, that was bad. But <laughs> the reality is, is it was just, uh, you know, one of those things that feel good and the whole city felt good. Because what is it about those kind of stories where it's impossible and all of a sudden, voila. I mean, you can explain that one because they've been telling us forever, we're good athletes, we're good athletes, we're good athletes. And then... Sure enough, they're good athletes. You can explain that from human terms, but there's something about it that, that the story where all is lost and then flip, it just turns around, right? There's, in fact, 
you can make a good case for the fact that God put that in our DNA. We love that because he made it that way. In fact, he wrote the original story of all is lost, the Savior is dead, nobody believes he's the Son of God anymore, and then he's alive, right? And every other story is sort of a variation on that theme, if you will. And the, and the reality is, is you look at that and you go, what if... What if Jesus has asked us to believe and live on the basis of that story and live together in a world and a place where we just don't think and we're, not just, we're just not sure it's possible to live everything and to see everything that's promised by Jesus, that's promised in the Scripture? What if he actually said that? What if he kind of laid down the challenge and sort of double-dog dared us to do that? Well, guess what? He did. <laughs> in fact... You can open your Bible to Matthew chapter 16 if you're going to follow along. I'm I'm glad you brought your Bible if you did, and if you don't, don't worry about it. It's on the screen. But but the reality is is I'm going to, in these next four weeks, push you a bit. I'm going to push us, me too included. I'm going to dare us to believe that God has some great plans for us. And to some degree, I'll just tell you this. This is sort of a setup for the fall uh, 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 and some things that we think God's going to do here, and we want, we want everybody to be in on it, but really what I'm doing here is, is just two things. I'm trying to help us all to think deeply, myself included, about whether we are living everything Jesus means us to live in our lives individually, but more importantly, as a community of, of, of Jesus followers, a community of believers. And then secondly, after we've thought, as we think deeply about that, to pray together for the next four months that he would show us what that means. Those are the two goals I have for this whole series. And I'll say them again, but I would like to have you just, if you need to, write them down, but pray those things and think deeply about whether or not you, uh, you know, Jesus, uh, you're, you're living into everything that Jesus has for, for your life and that your church would do the same thing, that he would make it so, okay? You see, I, I want you to know I've been thinking a lot about our future, our future as a church. I've been doing a lot of thinking about that, and, uh, and uh, we've been talking about that, and, and you know, in this post-Christian age, when it can be kind of scary and spooky, uh, you know, what's, what's ahead, you know, what's the future look like? We've been told what the future looks like with Jesus. And we've been told that, yeah, yeah, it, it gets crazier and crazier and crazier in the world, but the reality is, is that no matter what, making deep, resilient disciples and trusting Jesus a little bit more or maybe a lot more, that that is the answer to no matter what happens in the future. That, that God is in this, that Jesus is in this. And that's why we're talking about this series called Dare You, and that's why we are launching into uh, this passage when Jesus brings his disciples together and he launches, or a, a way, another way to put it is he casts the vision for what is happening here right now. And, and he shows us some proof that we can apply here right now that he actually is with us and that he's into this and that he's doing this. So open your Bibles, if you haven't yet, to Matthew 16. And um, let's just talk about this for a second because I want you to see exactly how Jesus dares us and how he pushes us. That this isn't a, a Dwayne thing. This is a, a Jesus thing, Okay. Let's start at verse 13 of Matthew chapter 16. And I'm just going to read the first phrase because I've got to kind of explain something here. Verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man, that's his favorite name for himself, 
the Son of Man is. He gets that name from Daniel 7, by the way, and Ezekiel. But, but the reality is, is what, what, where they are is they're in this place called Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was a, a region that was developed in a city uh, that was uh, put together by Philip Herod, okay? Herod Philip. Her- Herod Philip was the brother of Herod Antipas, who was the Herod in the south uh, of the region of Israel, of Palestine, as the Romans call it. Uh, He was the, Herod Philip was the king in the north, and the the, the Herod brothers were, you know, you wouldn't want to be a Herod brother, I mean, because Herod in the south stole the Herod's brother's wife in the north, and then they started killing off their wives, it's goofy. But anyway, so Herod Herod wanted to, Philip wanted to be somebody, okay? So he names the city after Caesar, and then he puts his, his name right next to him, Caesar, Caesarea Philippi. And so this place was meant to be sort of a a pagan religion resort area, resort region. It really was. I mean, you know, it had all these pagan temples, and everybody could go there and chill and kick back. And and Jesus isn't bringing his disciples there, obviously. He's bringing them to get them out from under the danger and the watchful eye of the Jewish leaders, because none of the Jewish leaders would want to be up here, because the people, the Jewish people were getting all excited about Jesus, but the elders and the Jewish uh, religious leaders were not obviously, and, and they were starting to think about how they could kill him. So Jesus gets the disciples away for a little retreat up in Caesarea Philippi, and these guys are just kind of wandering around looking at all this stuff. They'd never seen anything like it. Uh, but I want to show you a couple of pictures, because uh, for those of us who are going to Israel in a couple of weeks, we're going to see this, but, but uh, I, I'm, I'm giving everybody sort of the tour today. Look at this. This is an artist's rendering of what you would see uh, back then, what they would have seen. This, this temple on the, the left that's the temple to the god, the Greek god Pan. The Greek god Pan was a god uh, who was a wild god. He was the forest god. He was the, the, the fertility god. He was a, this, this is a wild place. We have temples to Pan. Hollywood, Las Vegas, the Cineplex down the street, that kind of stuff, right? We got these temples. And, and that temple, but you see there's kind of a cave behind that temple? The other one's to Augustus. He was a big Caesar, but we don't care about him. Pan, behind the, the little cave behind Pan, well, let me show you what it looks like today. You can still see it. It's that cave right there. At the bottom of that cave, Josephus tells us that they tried to, to uh, figure out how deep that cave is because it was filled with water, but they put rope down and rope down and rope down, and they could never get to the bottom of it. And it, it was actually called the Gates of Hades or the Gates of the Netherworld. You're going to want to remember that a couple of verses later. But, but what they would do is they'd throw their sacrifices in there. And what I'm just trying to say is, 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 you know, that's really neat. You know, it's really cool, a little travelogue there, Dwayne, way to go. But the reality is, is what, what they were seeing was not that different from what we live with. It's not that different than the things we're facing. And so the call that Jesus is giving these guys is, is in reality still in effect. It's still, it, it even matches up in terms of the cultural challenges we have to some degree. Not the same challenges, but the same level of challenge in terms of our lives. And look what, what happens next. As, as Jesus says, who's, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, the disciples replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others say Jeremiah, and one of the prophets. Now, before we get too hard on these people and think they're really stupid and dumb for thinking these prophets came back, just remember that 25% of Americans believe in reincarnation. And here's another factoid. From if the polling in 2016 that came out is true, 
25% of the church, look straight up here, don't look at anybody, 25% of the church believes in reincarnation. <laughs> don't look at somebody, you do? No, no that's not, you know, no, we, we're not into that. But that's, that's kind of how people saw Jesus, okay? Verse 15, but what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, of course he did. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. So he actually, in, in the uh, translation, or uh, in, in Matthew's uh, gospel here, the original word was Christ. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah or the anointed one. But the, the thing is, is, this is sort of a rhetorical thing, this question that Jesus is asking. It's a rhetorical uh, question because in John chapter 1, for example, both Andrew and Nathaniel call him the Messiah as soon as they meet him. John, or Peter himself calls Jesus the Messiah in John chapter 6. So Jesus is, is, is asking them this so he can get their thinking and to some degree our thinking going in a whole different direction. Because we've already read the Bible. We already know that's what, it, <clears throat> what um, he, he, he was, the whole story is that that's who he is. So it's not news per se. It's like, okay, if that's really true, then let me tell you something. So he's, he's setting up to kind of push us, to push them, to get us to think about things a little more carefully and clearly. And look at verse 17. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. I imagine Peter looked around those guys, and, see, I heard from God right there. And I tell you that you are Peter, which by the way means rock. He's, Jesus is giving him a new name. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, there it is, did he point? I don't know, will not overcome it. Now, I just need to pause here for a second and talk about this word rock, because there's been a lot of controversy in the church over the last uh, two millennia. Okay, what, who is Jesus referring to, or what is Jesus referring to when he says, on this rock I will build my church? Because Peter's name means rock, and that's the name he just gave him. And yes, Peter became the, the uh, leader of the Jerusalem church. Remember how he went from scaredy cat and freaking out and denying Jesus three times within just a few days and became the most bold spokesperson for the gospel in the church? Remember that? an amazing example of transformation that God offers to all of us if we just follow Jesus and if we just trust him more. And, and that's, that's Peter, that's who he was. But it's pretty obvious from the way Jesus is talking here and from the context and the, the original language and all that kind of stuff, and without going into all that, that Jesus isn't saying that Peter's the rock he's going to build the church on. It's the belief, the truth that Peter just spoke that he's going to build the church on. That he, in fact, is God in human flesh. He is the Messiah. He is the one who will come. And he says, on that rock, that belief, I will build my church. On trusting in that truth, specifically trusting in me, the living truth, I will build my church. Now, when we look at this, you need to understand, and we'll go into this, you, these guys don't know what church is. If, they, if Jesus had actually used the word church, they would have said, you're going to start a what? What we think of as church and what we've seen is not what these guys would have thought of. They, they wouldn't have uh, been, been able to, to factor that in. All the things we, we think of church, they, they just wouldn't be able to get it. Uh, for example, look in the ESV version, uh, it says this in verse 18. It says, I will build my church and the gates of hell so specifically, the gates of hell, which they probably were seeing in this region, shall not prevail against it. 
The word for church in that word, in that sentence, is the Greek word ekklesia. Maybe you've heard this before. And, and, and the reason we need to go through this is because today, when people hear the word church, I don't know what you think of when you hear the word church, or, or, or rather than think of, I don't know what you feel when you hear the word church. Uh, but those feelings, those thoughts are not what these guys would have thought. They would have thought ecclesia because they knew what that was because the Greek translation of the Bible during Jesus' time, during Matthew's time, uh, it was sort of like the standard version uh, of the general common language. You know, it was like the King James or the NIV of that day. It's not the New Testament, of course, the Old Testament. New Testament wasn't written yet. They, this word was used in that um, that translation to talk about the assembly of God's people or the congregation of God's people or the gathering of God's people. So they would have known what the ecclesia was of that. And it, but it wasn't an institution. It wasn't a, 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 you know, a building or anything like that. It was a gathering, a congregation, uh, a, an assembly. Now, you say, well, that, that's, that, how helpful is that? What does that mean? Well, it means that there's a dynamic here and that there's a, there's, a, there's a movement here that Jesus is saying. He says, I will start this thing that will move through the world and move through history. And the, the church, therefore, is the gathering. It's the people. It's not, it's not a, a building. It's not a place. It's not a location. You see, you begin to look at that and you go, well, how did that happen? Well, about 300 years after this, after Jesus uh, says this to them at Caesarea Philippi, a little over 300 years, something horrible, awful, ugly, and, uh, and really bad happens. And, and it's this. Constantine becomes the emperor of Rome. He becomes the new Caesar, okay? And, and in Constantine, he's worshiping all these pagan gods and all this stuff, but his wife becomes a Christian. And Constantine has this... Um, has this dream where he said, you know, he puts crosses to represent Christ on his shields of his soldiers. And he's not having a too good a time in battle up to this point. He puts the crosses on the shields and all of a sudden he starts winning battles. <gasps> this works. This is great. So he made relig uh, Christianity one of the official religions of uh, the Roman Empire. He was still worshiping a god named Mithras and all kinds of crazy stuff. But he put that there. He sent his wife to Jerusalem to see some of the, or find some of the holy sites like the sepulcher and the birth of the Nativity Church and all that. She went down there to do that uh, that we'll see again in a couple of weeks. But the reality is, is that she, uh, he uh, makes Christianity an official religion of Rome. Now that's not great. It's not the end of the world, but it, it that's not the really bad, awful, horrible thing. What happens then, we're not sure when, but historians think it was about this time that they start calling the church or the ecclesia, they start calling it the kirk. It's kind of a weird, kind of Germanic, Gaulish, Gothic word. But the problem with that word is, it means the house of the Lord. So everybody started associating the church with the building with the place, with the location. And that would have made absolutely no sense to any of these guys that Jesus is standing around with in, in Caesarea Philippi. And, 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 and it started this sort of idea that, you know, if we just get our rear ends in the seats on Sunday morning, we're going to get some fairy dust dropped on us and life's going to go better. But Jesus isn't saying that. He's saying you are the church. I am the church. Together we're the church. It's not any individual by ourselves, by the way. It's not a me thing. It's an us thing. You are the church. 
You are my movement through history. You are the Jesus movement. You are the kingdom of God on earth. That's what he's saying. It's, it's not a place. It's not a building. It's not the buildings are bad or any of that stuff. It's, and I'm not making a case, by the way, for us not to use the word church. It's the word we use. I'm just saying let's understand what it means because, you know, so many people think that church is a place you go. It's not. It's who you are. It's who you are and who I am. That's what the church is. And, and, and beyond that, you know, so many times people think, well, well, church is one of those places where, uh, you know, I get there once a week, I get to this location, and it's sort of like the shopping mall, or it's like an institution, or it's like a place where I, I go get my, you know, pick-me-up for the week. That's not what it is. There are different reasons for you to be here, and the reason is for you to be here on Sunday morning to worship together as the church is that you are the church, and the church needs to be the church, which is gathered together to praise God and say, okay, Jesus, what about this week? Together. That's what it is, and that's why, why Jesus is making this point in the presence of this gates of hell thing and in the place that he is, and you see that the catalyst of what we just uh, celebrated, the catalyst of that event of the crucifixion and resurrection weekend shoots out of there and shoots out of the first century just like Jesus promised it would at Caesarea Philippi. And it changes one-third of the world so far in 2019. It's been moving and it's been growing and it's been impacting the world ever since then. I mean, look over the, you know, beyond the challenges, beyond the struggles, look over the top of that and see what's actually happened. That's what Jesus wants us to understand. And, and look where he goes with this thing. He says in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosened in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples uh, to get their rear ends in church, and when they go out the doors, they can do whatever they want. Oh, oh that, you know, if you didn't laugh at that, you've got to read your Bible. I was looking for a little comedic moment to kind of rest there for a minute. Yeah, I know. I just, I'm just saying that you know, that would be crazy. He had, they had no idea. These people had no idea what we would think of when we think of church, when we think of it's a place to go. It's a, or, or as a dear, dear old lady said to me one time, not here, okay, but dear lady, I just said, well, why are, you, why are you at this church? And she said, I really like the people, and besides, you never know when you're going to need a good church. You never know when you're going to need a good doctor, a good shovel. I mean, yeah, I, what, what's the deal? I, it, it was like uh, kind of dawn, and I was a young pastor, but I actually kept my mouth shut on that one. But what Jesus is trying to do here is he, he's, he's, um, he, he's trying to comfort and inspire at the same time. I'm going to give you some keys. And again, we have to talk about this because some parts of the church, uh, uh, global church, th thinks that you know, Peter was being handed the king, keys and he, that uh, he might be like a pope or something. Now, now you know which part of the church I'm talking about, but, but that's not what he's saying. He's not handing Peter the keys individually. He's still talking about the plural you. It's plural here. I'm handing you all the keys to the kingdom, the church, the keys to the kingdom that is going to change the world, is going to change this planet. And, and, and um, he, he's saying, when you think of church, I want you to think about that. You see, this is... This is um, 
This is vision day. This is vision casting day. You could even say this is sort of like launch day of the church. Acts 2 would be opening day of the church. But this is, this is uh, launch day when Jesus launches the church and he, he gets us going. He, he launches the, the gathering, the assembly that would move through history. And in the midst of that, what he's trying to say is, is in, in the Jesus era, the Jesus era, by the way, is anywhere between 30, 30 AD or so to 2019 so far. That's the era of when Jesus is, is present in the world. So the Jesus era, in the Jesus era, nothing happens until Jesus' people trust him big with their whole lives. That's what he's talking about. He's trying to get them to start. He's, it, this is bigger than U12, but it's got to start with U12, and he's, he's moving it out and moving it out and moving it out. And, and he's, he, he's using these words to try and inspire them because he's doing something completely different than so many times people in the 21st century think of when they hear the word church. Those words would have made no sense to these guys whatsoever. You know, I, I was impacted by this and, and struck about this, not only because I was going to be studying it, and I studied it this week and, and it was talking about this, but something that happened last weekend got me thinking about somebody I met last year. He wouldn't even remember my name, but I, I call him a friend in quotes because what he said and what he taught when I was in Bethlehem at the Christ at the Checkpoint conference last June uh, it was uh, just so impactful. Dr. Ajith Fernando from Sri Lanka, uh, who is the director of teaching uh, for uh, Youth for Christ in Sri Lanka, uh, he, he's kind of a cross between Ravi Zacharias and J. Vernon McGee. I mean, only he talks like he's from Sri Lanka. But, but it, 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 what he said, every morning he would drop some little bomb into my brain and heart, and it would just float down, and then all explode. I mean, it was, it was very impactful. I told him that, and then Jessica, uh, my daughter uh, that was there with me, we we met up with them again in Jerusalem and talked to him there for a while, and so thankful. Well, he talked to us about, you know, uh, the experiences and the tragedies they were having in Sri Lanka. And then when the bombs went off last week, I was like, oh man, I hope he's okay, because he's preaching in churches over there every single Sunday. And I looked and I looked and couldn't find anything until Tuesday morning. Um, I opened up the internet and found a, a, a letter that he had written to Christians around the world. Please pray for this person and this person and this person. These people that are my friends who were in the bombing. Some of them died. Please pray for this church. I've, tre- I've preached there tens of times. That sort of thing. And it was very, very powerful. And it was like God was saying, see, I got this. I got this. Uh, and uh, uh, then I open up, I will go into my office and I open up the, uh, the commentary that I have on my computer for the book of Acts. And guess what? He wrote it. <laughs> I didn't think I'd heard of him before last summer. But it was as if God was saying, I've got this. This is the church. And, but here's the thing that came to my mind. When Dr. Fernando was teaching, he told us about the Sri Lankan Civil War that only ended a couple of years ago. You see, Sri Lanka is a Buddhist-majority nation, and they're not the nice kind of Buddhists. They're the killing kind of Buddhists, okay? The kind of Buddhists that you have in Myanmar and places like that. And he talked about how Christians had been persecuted before, during, and after the war, especially evangelical Christians. And that was the target last weekend. But he didn't say it like, oh man, we are so under it. He said it with such winsomeness and with such a smile about what God was doing in his nation and how many people were coming to Christ that it was like, bring it on, because Jesus is going to turn this upside down and do the exact opposite. That was his attitude. And I think that's the attitude that Jesus is trying to inspire in us by telling us that the gates of hell 
whatever it is in the future, is not going to prevail against what I'm up to. And if you look at history and you look at our lives and you look at this church and how in the world, I mean, I've got a different perspective because I was the church planting pastor, man, 25 years ago, and you have no idea how many hurdles had to happen to get this thing going. I was told that you had to have at least two miracles uh, of some sort to get a church off the ground. And I asked the, the pastor, the leader that told me that, and I said, can I just have both my miracles now? He said, no, it's whenever Jesus said. Right? And, and, and that's the reality. And Jesus is kind of saying that to, 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 to these guys. And, and it's because of that that he says what he's about to say beginning in verse 20, 21. Look at this. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go, that's a moral necessity word, he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. So see, he's told him about this before. Peter took him aside. Okay, Peter, Peter. It's one of those seems like a good idea at the time, but Peter. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Whoa. You are stumbling block to me, and you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely the concerns, human concerns. Now, please understand, I don't think we should blame Peter here. If I'm in that situation, I'm thinking he's going to set up the kingdom of God on, their, on earth right now. He's going, to, he's going to beat back the Romans. He's going to turn this thing around right here, right now, on this earth. And, and uh, Jesus starts saying he's going to be killed. I'm probably doing the same thing as Peter. And, and he, he's probably struggling with that uh, uh, right there. And, you know, so I don't think Peter, I mean, Jesus is calling Peter Satan. It's pretty clear he's not. He's calling these merely human concerns that are used of Satan, Satan. And that's pretty serious. Because if our human concerns get in the way of what Jesus wants to do in and through us, there's the double dog dare right there. Don't let that happen, Jesus is saying. Because that's from the enemy, that's the evil one, that's the problem. In fact, I think what Jesus is trying to get us to ask is a question that's pretty probing and pretty deep, and here's how I would say it. Do we ever, by the words we say and how we live our lives, or the way we interpret Jesus' work, drain the power right out of the movement by switching Jesus' big agenda for our puny one? Because it's scary, right? It's spooky. It was, it was scary, and it, I mean, it just looks too big for us. And that's kind of what Peter was saying. No, 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 you can't die. We're just getting this thing going. How, how can you die? I'm going to race from that. Yeah, never mind that. That's not possible. How are you going to, you know? They just couldn't see how this was possible. Like, we can't see how it could be possible that God could turn everything around and change everything through his church today, right? Why? It's because of those crazy human concerns. The things that we think are so big, but God says they're small. And, 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 and so, you know, you look at these guys out of this situation, and, and you start looking, say, at the book of Acts, where Jesus rises from the dead, and in chapter one of the book of Acts, they're going, we're so glad you're alive, Jesus. This is great. This is, is this the time when you're gonna set up the kingdom of God? 
And the word that they use there means, is this the age? Is this the moment? And we're, you know, why are we on this hill? And why, it is, why are you looking like you look? I mean, what, are, you go, are, you, are you taking us here to drop us another you know, heavy bit of information? And that's just before he ascends into heaven, right? But look, look, what, look what Jesus says to them in verse 7 of Acts chapter, seven, uh, Acts, Acts chapter 1. He said to them, it is not for you to know the time or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. And here's the news. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in, all in Judea and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You see, that's the summary of the whole book of Acts there, but more importantly, that's the summary of all of church history right up to 2019. Right there. I mean, because you look at these disciples, though, and, and they're trying to imagine this from their end. Try to get to it from there. Okay, Peter, James, John, Nathaniel, Bartholomew. Hey, guys, okay. Jerusalem, all right, we got that, check. Jerusalem, we can, we can do. We'll be your witnesses there. Okay, Judea. Okay, yeah, we got that. That's the state around Jerusalem. We, we know that. We can cover that. Samaria, well, we don't really like Samaritans at all. And we, they're not like us. They're just not like us. But if you say so, Jesus, we'll go to Samaria. It's a walk up the road. We can, we can do that. The ends of the earth. Jesus, we have no idea what you're saying. I, we don't even know if there is an end to the earth. How in the world are we supposed to know where that is? That's impossible. And Jesus says, you're, no, you're going to be my witnesses. What's that? That's somebody that goes on the witness stand. That's a, that's a form of proof, right? That's a form of legal proof. Is you're going to be my witnesses on the stand. So what Jesus is saying is you and I and, and everybody sitting in these seats and all the people that are worshiping around this town and across the world this weekend, guess what that is? That's proof. It's proof that, the ends, that when the ends of the earth hear the good news. Now, I, I just have to do another mea culpa here because maybe you're in a part of this too and you need to do it too. I don't know. But honestly, I mean, I've been a pastor a long time, but up until four years ago, when I started going to Kenya to teach pastors, I thought that was the end of the earth. I did, but they're closer to Jerusalem than we are. And so I get there the first night, and I'm just exhausted. So Timothy says, hey, you're going to preach at the, uh, um, at the uh, intervarsity thing at the university. So okay, great. So I preach at the university. People come forward. Well, I'm not sure what you're doing here, but I'm going to pray for you. Um, and then I get up early the next morning. We travel three to four hours to a church that's on a canyon overlooking a valley that leads over to Uganda. And, um, and they've been worshiping for two hours straight. So what do they do when we get there? They worship for another hour. And then I get to talk. And Alex, the guy who became my friend, he was my translator that first time, uh, Alex gets up and he says, oh, we are so happy to have a missionary with us. Me? A missionary? I'm never a missionary. I mean, God tried to call me to that one time, but I <laughs> I'm a missionary with us from the ends of the earth. And it suddenly dawned on me that we're the ends of the earth to them. So all I'm saying is, surprise, you're the end of the earth. Just look at the person next to you and go, huh, you're proof that Jesus is really real. Right there, I mean, you're proof. Because you're the ends of the earth. You know, that's, that's what we know but these guys had no idea. All they heard Jesus saying was, buckle up, because this is going to move out of the train station faster than you can imagine. This is something that is, is incredible. And, and this is a gathering that is going to pick up steam fast. 
And you can imagine how they were a bit scared. I mean, they were a bit fearful. In fact, if you look, again, at chapter one of the book of Acts, as Jesus ascends to the heaven, what's the first thing they do? They go back and they stay in their upper room for days. I mean, they, they go home at night, but they come to the upper room, and all they're doing is look at verse 14. They all join together constantly in prayer, along with the women, Mary, and the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' brothers. So Jesus' brothers, after the resurrection, didn't believe in him before the resurrection. They come back at this point. This is where James, his brother, comes back. So, so they come back, and everybody's joining in prayer. Why? Because they're scared. They don't know what's going to happen. They don't know what to do. I mean, think of the equation here. Jesus has just laid out a huge, impossible task in places that they have no idea where they are. And he says, I want you to go there and be my witnesses. And then he gives them a little plus side and would say, but right now I want you to just go back to Jerusalem and wait. And then he ascends into heaven. Whoa, whoa, wait, wait. Okay. Huge, impossible task plus wait. That equals, in my world, worry, quite a bit of worry. It, works, it equals really a total freak out. And I'm not saying these people were sniveling in the corner. No, 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 uh-uh. These were brave people. But they had just come through the crucifixion of the despair, the crucifixion. Nobody thought this could work out till Sunday when Jesus walks in the room and they say, he's yet alive and the total exhilaration. I mean, they had to be worn out. And then Jesus, 40 days later, says, okay, I'm going away and I want you to go there to wait, but I'm, I'm going to send the Spirit and all this. But they're not connecting all that. They're just going, I have no idea what you're up to, God, but they're praying and they're praying. Show us. Don't let us miss it. You see, they were afraid. But they knew something we say all the time here, but not nearly enough. Faith is not not being afraid. Faith is moving forward with Jesus in spite of your fear. Faith is fearing Jesus or respecting Jesus and trusting him and loving him in spite of your fear and going forward and forward. And that is what they were doing. And what we see here is that every single major movement of, of Jesus in the early church, every single one, if you look at them, you can read them, every single movement uh, or event, rather, of Jesus in the early church began with Jesus' people taking a gut check of how much they really trusted him. And frankly, that's what I'm hoping we'll do in the next four weeks, take a, trust, a gut check. Are we trusting him with our lives, with our families, with our church, in our faith, with the mission that he's given us. Are we trusting him? You see, that's where Jesus goes. He goes back to the mission back in chapter 16 in the next verses, beginning at verse 24. Then Jesus said to them, his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple, I imagine the guy's raising their hands. Okay? All right, all right, Matthew, you want to be saying? Peter, you've had your hand up the whole day. You can put your hand down. Uh, you know, Andrew, Bartholomew, uh, okay, good. All right, we, we're all on, on the board. Judas, uh, yeah, I know about you. Whoever wants to be a disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoa, what does that mean? Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And it means lose it in me. They didn't know that. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. They had no idea about the resurrection yet. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going 
to come in the Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. So those are some pretty deep questions, right? Some soul-searching questions. What he's trying to say is this is not just a Jerusalem thing. This is not just an us thing, you 12. This is a beyond you thing. You see, what Jesus is stating in their terms that they can understand, hopefully, and in our terms that we can understand, is something that God told the Messiah before the Messiah come, came, eight centuries before the Messiah came. In 720, 730 B.C., the prophet Isaiah was given a prophecy about the Messiah, who we, turn, we know, we've read the end of the book, we know that's Jesus. He gave him a prophecy, uh, God the Father gave God the Son a prophecy about what he was to do and what his mission was. And I'm not going to put it on the screen, but you can write it down. Isaiah 49.6. Uh, Isaiah 49.6, God says, it is too small a thing for you just to go to Jacob. In other words, it's too small a thing for you just to go to the people that are already convinced. I want you to go with this message to the whole world, or another way to say it, the ends of the earth. Starting with the happiest place on earth, a happy valley, and moving out into post-Christian PDX, and on and on. That's the mission for every church, and every Christian, and every Jesus follower. And that's that's what Jesus is trying to articulate. See, he's trying to not let us get trapped in our explanation, expectations. You see, Jesus calls us away from that trap of expectations because human nature is to get stuck in our expectations. It, it just is. It's not anybody's fault necessarily. It's part of living in a fallen world. I mean, why do, we, why do we make our expectations smaller than God wants us to? Because we want to make sure we can handle it, Right? We want to make sure that we as human beings can cover it. And in, in some cases, that's good. In some cases, when you're doing your finances, you know, you, you, you don't spend money you don't have. You make your expectations reasonable. When you're at the gym and you're going to pick up a weight, you're very careful about your expectations, or at least you should be. You don't want to hurt anything. If you're hoping your favorite team will win or you're the basketball player taking a shot, you want to make sure that you can do that and you have confidence in yourself, blah, blah, blah. But that's not the only confidence that matters. And what he's saying is, is that don't let your expectations keep you from what I want you to see that I can do. You see, the whole point is, is that when the church trusts big, God does big expect, unexpected things and he wants us to be open to the unexpected things things. You see, I, I, we're, we're going to sort of land this right now, but from the very beginning, Jesus taught us to dream big, not because we're so hot, not because we're so good, or that we can find the resources and we can do this, but because he has them all, because he can, and he will deliver them at just the right moment. He will deliver what needs to happen what we need for what needs to happen at just the right moment. And that's exactly what happened in the early church. Remember, they grew by thousands per day, and they didn't even have the Internet. They didn't have any big shows to come and listen to, none of that stuff. They didn't have a location. It had nothing to do with the location. And yet there were all these people that started saying, we believe what you're saying. We've seen it. We trust you, Peter. We know you've seen Jesus alive. We've seen Jesus walking around. We believe 
that, that, that he died for our sins and he rose from the dead and I want him to forgive my sins so I'm giving my life to him and exponentially things just started going. Beyond any buildings and all that kind of stuff and all those resources, it was all there, all God doing that thing. And that's how it launched out of there. And there were, through the centuries now, there have been preachers and teachers and missionaries and, and, and Christians who witness on the job and Christians who, who stand up for what's right on the job. And, and he's there in the midst of, uh, and he's got his people there in the midst of a world that maybe look like the gates of hell. Because, yeah, we live in a culture of death now. That's right. But God has got purpose and he's got things he wants to do and things that are beyond us. And the answer is it's okay to be a little scared. But don't let that keep you from taking the dare. I'm suspicious about that. And, and Jesus is saying, I'm suspicious about that. That when you, when you sort of don't take my dare, you don't think I can do it. That your scaredness is saying, you, you know, you, you don't think I can do it. Now, I'm going to end this by, by, by doing this. You know, I haven't quoted C.S. Lewis for a long time. I've been keeping track. And today I'm not going to quote him either. I'm going to quote Aslan, uh, the Christ figure, lion in the Narnia series. Because one of those great books in that series is The Horse and His Boy. Maybe you've read this. And uh, the, the horse in The Horse and His Boy is a, is a horse named Bree. And Bree is a talking horse, but he doesn't dare let anybody know he's a talking horse because there's humans around and he's sort of, he's sort of enslaved to them. Okay? But then he gets set free and it's a world he's never seen before. It's kind of like these disciples. He just can't, you know, not sure what, and he's getting scared because there's some pretty big things coming up, wars and things like that. He doesn't really know what to do. So Aslan shows up and meets him, the Christ figure, Aslan. And when he meets him, look what he says about his worries and his fears. Then Aslan lifted his head and spoke in a louder voice. Now, Bree, he said, you poor, proud, frightened horse, draw near, near still, my son. Watch this. Do not dare not to dare. Do not dare not to dare. Touch me, smell me, here my, are my paws, here is my tail, these are my whiskers, I am a true beast. Aslan said, Bree, in a shaken voice, I'm afraid, I must be rather a fool. Happy the horse who knows that while he is still young, or human either. And just to make the point, in eternity world, for those of us who are going to be there, in eternity, all of us in this room are still young. So that's for us. You see, that's the hope and the desire that you and I, just over these next four weeks, that we would trust him enough to think deeply about who he is and what he is in our lives as, as Eastridge community of believers, as Eastridge gathering as the assembly, and that we would ask him to give us the faith to believe that he can do what he says he can do and will do, and the gates of hell and the culture of death will not prevail against it. And over the next four months of this summer, that we would pray together, that we would pray together that he would prepare our hearts for just exactly what he wants us to do. And that is what we're going to be doing these next four weeks. I encourage you to be here if at all possible, but my challenge to you today is just start praying that prayer with me, that we would think deeply about who he really is and what he wants to do in our lives. Let me pray for us.
our loving Lord Jesus, we thank you that you so clearly, so clearly tell us who you are and then tell us who we are and what you can do if we just dare not to not dare. Lord, I thank you for this, my church family. I thank you for where you've brought us to. I look at the, I think about the past and it makes me so hopeful for your future in us. And these people, these my friends, what a wondrous place to be in, a wondrous moment to be at. We just ask, we put all this in your hands, Jesus, and we, we trust you and teach us to trust you more. Over this next week, whatever it is that we carry around with us, help us to trust you more and put it all in your hands, our lives in your hands. And as a church, help us to do exactly that too. We thank you that you've promised to be here and that you've promised to overcome all that for your purposes and your mission and your glory. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for being here today. It's in your name we pray. Amen.